Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Over the years, the self-help home in Chicago has brought together more than 1,000 refugees and Holocaust survivors under one roof. A new documentary film, Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home, which showed recently at the Logan Film Festival, features the stories of the eventual residents of self-help who spent the war years surviving by any means necessary, fleeing to the Jewish ghetto of Shanghai, hiding in the French countryside, taken in by English families as a part of the kinder transport, or as prisoners in Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And on today's Access Utah, in the final program on our recent Holocaust series, we're going to be talking with the director, Ethan Benziger, and hear stories of Holocaust survivors and refugees in their own words from the film. Access Utah follows the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We uh, bring in uh, film director Ethan Bensinger, who has made it a, a very fascinating uh, new film, Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home. It's a documentary revealing the origins and uh, originality of a resourceful community that over the generations has brought together more than a thousand Central European Jewish refugees and Holocaust survivors under one roof. And so he interweaves archival footage and testimony by self-help residents and founders, reaches back 70 years to tell the story of this generation. This is in Chicago. Yes, Tom. Uh, first of all, good to be here. Thanks for having yes, me. Yes, welcome in. Thanks. Uh, yeah, the self-help home is in Chicago, originally founded uh, as a service organization in 1938. And then after World War II, with more refugees arriving, they decided to build, uh, or I should say purchase, an old mansion on the south side of Chicago, Hyde Park, where the University of Chicago is located, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. And... Uh, so it's uh, it's been a refuge or a haven for Holocaust survivors uh, these last 70 years. We do have uh, some uh, a clip from the movie. Let's hear this. I think this uh, sets up what we're going to talk about. And then we want to get into some histories, very uh, some heartbreaking histories told first person by by some of the people who are now living in this. They this are place. indeed. Let's hear this from the film. From the beginning, there was a sense of Gemütlichkeit here. Gemütlichkeit is a German word. It means a feeling of comfort. A sense that you're feeling calm in your surroundings, that you're at home. Here at Chicago's self-help home, over 1,000 Western European Jews who survived the horrors of the Nazi regime have found a place to spend their final years. Today, it is home to the last generation of Jewish refugees and Holocaust survivors. And so the idea developed that a home was needed uh, which would provide a comfortable old age for refugees. We first helped the newcomers and then we realized that the only thing our parents still clung to were the old habits from the homeland. So the main thing was to provide some kind of a good life for our parents in their old age. And we felt the best way to help them was to open this home. We all realized at an early age that the people that had suffered the most with this whole immigration was not our generation, but our parents' generation. They were the ones who lost everything and left a certain happy life for a total uncertainty and total financial loss. We were really, what I would say, were cockeyed optimists because we didn't have any money and we were looking at a building. So how how we were going to acquire the building, we didn't really know. Most of the money came in very small amounts. People contributed $5 or $10 a year. And so it was a shoestring operation. 
and we'll loop back to to tell that story. I want to tell the story of the people through their own words and and through your 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 secondhand. Your, you know these people uh, of uh, what they went through before they got to the self help house. Uh, first, there's uh, kind of an irony here. The the younger people were thinking about the older people then. Now these younger people are are older. Um, in fact, one lady in the film is a hundred years old. She is indeed, yes. And she's remembering her grandfather, who who she remembers very fondly, who was apparently killed in his 90s during the the Holocaust. Yeah, She has fond memories of when she was a child braiding his beard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, these memories come back to the old people. and, And sometimes, of course, they're traumatized by their past. But that's one thing, Tom, very amazing about this group of people that makes them so special. Uh, they've worked that out. They've looked beyond that. They've had very productive lives in America. Uh, There's a sense of resilience there, whether it's their German cultural upbringing or whether it's what self-help really provides them today. My mom, too, is there, and she's 101, Mm. and she very much comes from that background as well. Your mother's Holocaust survivor? My mother and father were refugees from oh. Nazi Germany and mm. left the Hitler regime in 1934 for what was then Palestine and today is Israel. So they were one of the fortunate ones, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents and grandparents got out. Uh, Twenty-five other relatives didn't get out. Yeah. It, so that, this is how you came to the project. I was going to ask you how, how you got involved. Well, that is indeed the way. Mom has been a resident of self-help for more than 12 years. Before that, she was a volunteer there for 25. My grandmother was there as well in the 1980s. And I've been visiting self-help for some 30 years and started hearing these stories of Mm -hmm. the survivors and decided, here's something that needs to be told. Because in reality, Tom, we Americans grew up knowing such films as Schindler's List or The Pianist, which told the story of the East European Jews, the Warsaw Ghetto, for example. While the history of the Central European Jewish community, the Germans, Austrians, and Czechs, is a very different history. Mm-hmm. And I set out to tell that history. We'll hear some of that, some of it in, in, in their own words from the film as we go along here. Uh, I wanted to ask you before we go to the next clip, which uh, sort of sets up the uh, rise of Nazism and, and, uh, and the, uh, the ramp up of discrimination and, uh, and the problems. Problem seems like such a, a pale word, but uh, someone that came to mind. Uh, so you have you have relatives, you have refugees, and maybe have known some other people. Did they talk about their experiences early on, or did they just want to come to America and, and get going with their lives? Of course, you've got them on, on film now, and we do have people talking. Did, did they talk about this? You know, honestly, Tom, they didn't start talking about it till more than 30 years after the war. It was only with Claude Lanzmann's film in 1970, Shoah, which was really broadcast around the world for a period of four or five days, that people started opening up. In my situation, my mother didn't tell me till about 10 years ago that we had lost family members. Mm. So it was not uncommon for people to still keep that bit of history and trauma within themselves. Mm. And and you believe it was Shoah that uh, – why? The, 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 these were other people telling their experiences it was and, and other people freed tell, people up to – Yeah, I think there's a psychological impact. I'm not a psychologist, but I think that it was a catharsis there that made people feel that, yes, now they can tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we had the American miniseries then later on called The Holocaust, which played on TV. And again, that inspired people to come out. And the group that I interviewed, of course, they recognize being in their 90s, some in their hundreds, that they are the final eyewitnesses to the atrocities of the Nazi regime. And if anyone's going to tell that story, it has to be them. Hmm. There's there's extreme poignance there, isn't it? And, and it's a such a powerful idea. These people were losing them. So get them get them on tape we are um in chicago there's no firm figure some people say there's about a thousand refugees and survivors left and that's a very small number Mm. we do know that in israel one survivor dies every day 
Let's hear another uh, clip from the the movie. By the way, we're talking with uh, Ethan Bensinger. He is director of a uh, new film, which uh, showed recently at the Logan Film Festival. By the way, it was awarded Best Documentary, Best in Fest at the 2012 Sycamore Film Festival. Um, and the website, if you have uh, you want to know more, is storiesofselfhelp-film.com. The film is Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home. This is a, uh, a home in Chicago, brought together more than 1,000 Central European Jewish refugees and Holocaust survivors under one roof. And uh, Ethan Bensinger has some first-hand accounts of refugees and Holocaust survivors in in the movie. Uh, this next clip is uh, people sharing experiences uh, with the start of uh, Nazi discrimination. The first anti-Semitic incident uh, that I remember distinctly uh, was marching uh, to the public swimming pool uh, for our swimming instruction. And there was a sign that said, uh, Juden, uh, and I stepped out of line, and the teacher said, what's the matter? And I, I said, well, can you see, read that sign? It says, Jews are not permitted uh, to pollute the water. A Nazi was posted in front of the shop of my father's shop, and that people didn't come in there. I remember Nazis marching in the street with brown shirts and sang a song in English means when Jewish blood is flowing, it's good to taste it, taste twice as good when they are killed. I can't even imagine. That's <laughs> Nazi is her marching down the street singing this song. It just ramps up from here. And uh, I think in, in your film, uh, one of your the people says that Kristallnacht is, is kind of the point when a lot of people thought, oh, we got to get out of here. That was indeed the flashpoint. Uh, as I indicated, my parents left for uh, Palestine in 34. My grandparents, the f- parents of my mother, wouldn't leave till after Kristallnacht. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> my uh, grandfather was the typical assimilated Jewish German, fought in World War One on the German side, of course, got the Iron Cross. Uh, wasn't a practicing Jew, was a German first, and says, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm a proud German. This is going to blow over. But only with Kristallnacht and the destruction of synagogues, uh, the looting of stores, 7,000 stores, and the incarceration of some 30,000 Jews in Dachau at that point, did my grandparents finally have the awakening and realized it's time to go, it's now mm. or never. What, what year was Kristallnacht? 1938, November 30th, 9th and yeah. 10th. And, of course, this year in 2013, we're commemorating the 75th anniversary of Kristallnacht and the start of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And, of course, and and uh, I think uh, somewhere in the film, one of your experts says that the, the Nazis were happy if the uh, Jews left, right? Uh, they didn't make it easy. You couldn't take assets out with you, and a lot of countries didn't want to receive you, so it's very hard to get out. Right. That was, of course, the plan already starting in 1935 to force the Jews out of Germany. Uh, historians say that Hitler probably did not yet have in mind, even by 38, the total annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe or worldwide. Only with a Wannsee conference in 1942 did that move forward mm-hmm. then. And again, in your film, uh, this is something that, that I learned that only 100,000, a couple hundred thousand Jews in Germany, but then when, when Hitler conquers Poland, then you have a couple of million Jews just in the western part of Poland. That's very true, yeah. And uh, there's no way of forcing their immigration at that point in time. German Jews had the financial means to leave either for Shanghai, as we indicate in the movie, or to America if they had an affidavit of support to enter America. Uh, Eastern European Jews, the Polish Jews, were poor, and there was no way for them to get out. Mm -hmm. There's a very nice gentleman who does tell the story of getting out to Shanghai, um, and uh, he 
his family says, what are you, <laughs> what are you going to Shanghai for? Uh, it turns out he, he, he got there, um, and it turned out to be a, a place of, of refuge for a lot of Jews. It was indeed a refuge for 17,000 Jews, and things were tough there. Uh, many people lived together in small apartments. Jobs were scarce. Food was scarce. But they weren't being annihilated as they were in, in Nazi-occupied Europe. On the other hand, there were only a certain number of sort of quota tickets available for Shanghai. So the gentleman you refer to, Horst, was able to get two entry tickets for his parents, none for his sister, who was left behind in Berlin and ultimately perished in Auschwitz. I was going to ask you uh, what, what happened to her. This is this is an example of these heartbreaking situations. He can only get two passes. He could only get two, that's so correct. Some families could in, yeah. come as entire families, but he could only get two passages, yes. There, there are two uh, very nice ladies, uh, sisters, who figure prominently in, in the film, uh, and uh, this gets us to the, the kinder transport. Um, uh, people in England are uh, willing to accept children, so many children get out, and so in this case, the younger sister is able to go to England, the older sister is not. Correct, yes. Uh, the British government uh, passed legislation uh, that 10,000 Jewish unaccompanied children could enter Great Britain uh, without a visa as long as a 50-pound sterling note as security would be put up so that the children at the end of the war would go back home. Now, these children departed from train stations in Prague and in Berlin, thinking that one day they would see their loved ones again, and that was not the case. Mm. There's a poignant story in the film where the, the uh, I guess the, the people, I don't know, on purpose, maybe they didn't want prolonged goodbyes. They went and they you know, snatched the kids, put them on the train, and the father <laughs> jumps on the train. He's trying to get one last goodbye with his yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking, as Edith tells us in the film, because Edith was too old at that point, at the age of 17, to go on the kinder transport while her younger sister, Marietta, uh, was able to go. And Edith is saying farewell and is witnessing her father, of course, trying, as you say, to jump on that train to give Marietta, this younger sister, a last kiss goodbye. Mm. And the heartbreak, of course, is not just that Marietta will not see her family again, but then Edith uh, is carted off to Theresienstadt in Auschwitz. And her parents then are, of course, murdered in Auschwitz mm -hmm. later in time. It was striking. Uh, these people are in their 90s. They are. 80s, 90s. One lady's 100. Uh, these many years later, um, they have to pause. Uh, it's, it, it's, uh, they can't get through it. I don't know how many takes you had to, to take with some of, the, some of the people. It's still searing, searing experiences uh, many, many years later. Yeah, it, it was a difficult movie to make, Tom. Uh, we often had to stop. Mm -hmm. Tears were flowing on both sides. The interviewee, of course, it was difficult for them to relate the story. But we as filmmakers, uh, we, as I say, we had to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, why don't you tell me about uh, Theresienstadt? Um, I, this is, was sort of a, it wasn't a death camp in and of itself. This was sort of a halfway place from which you went to Auschwitz. But there were some stories, um, just some heartbreaking stories there in, in Theresienstadt, including one lady who, who got pregnant. And uh, if you got pregnant, you knew that was the end. You right. couldn't, uh, so she had to have an abortion. There again, these many years later, that's... Yeah, still, still with her. Yeah, she of course did have an abortion. Uh, Edith, uh, the other character in the film that was at Theresienstadt, contracted meningitis and was operated on by a dentist of all things. Uh, life was very hard, especially for the elderly in Theresienstadt, with food rations and a lack really of proper medical care. So even though it wasn't a death camp. 
people dropped like flies, mm. and Theresienstadt was a way station for Auschwitz. Waves of trains would arrive at Theresienstadt, bringing new refugees, and the ones that were there went on other trains off to the east. Mm. So there was cer- certainly separation of family and place at Theresienstadt. Tearful, heartbreaking goodbyes. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Ethan Benziger. He is a filmmaker, a new film, Refuge Stories of the Self-Help Home. We're going to get to talking about this home in Chicago that's brought together more than a 1,000 Central European Jewish refugees and Holocaust survivors under one roof. Uh, Right now we're telling their stories, and uh, we're going to have uh, a powerful clip uh, from two of the ladies we've been talking about, Edith Pollack Stern and uh, Hannah Messenger. Uh, Their time in Auschwitz, that'll be coming up, and we'll hear from uh, about the uh, Self-Help Home. Uh, following a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival presenting the regional premiere of Peter and the Starcatcher with seven other productions June through October in 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm talking with Ethan Benziger. Uh, His film, Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home, which is a documentary revealing origins of a resourceful community that over the generations has brought together more than a thousand Central European Jewish refugees and Holocaust survivors under one roof. Uh, This is in Chicago. That film showed recently at the Logan Film Festival. And uh, we are uh, grateful Ethan uh, Benziger is here to to talk about this with us. We uh, met in the previous segment, and it's in your film. And by the way, the place to go to to learn about the film, storiesofselfhelp-film.com. I think Benziger, we we met uh, two women, Ethan Pollock Stern and Hannah Messenger. Uh, they came from different areas. I, I can't remember uh, where specifically. Uh, they're both from Czechoslovakia. Uh, Edith uh, from um, Prague, as a matter of fact, born in Vienna, but her father uh, uh, was the manager of a chocolate factory in Prague, and. Uh, and Hannah from a wonderful spa town called Carlsbad mm. in the uh, Czech mountains. Mm. And we've told the story in the previous segment about uh, Edith's sister, Marietta Pollack-Reba, uh, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, who was lucky enough to, to get on the kinder transport, and she's now in England. But uh, now these two families, uh, the, the uh, Edith pollack uh, Pollux and the Stearns and Hannah Messenger are in uh, now heading to Auschwitz. And here is uh, here's the clip from the movie. So we arrived in Auschwitz. And those couples, they started screaming at us, leave everything, leave everything, nothing, nothing, you know, just leave it out, 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 out. And then they said, uh, young people, this, uh, older people and mothers with children, this side, and my mother, she was old. She was about, she was 55. I tried to go with her. And I was told, no, you cannot go with her because you have to go left. And my mother was crying and screaming. So there was not much of a goodbye. And then we marched. And while we were marching, we saw those chimneys, you know, with, with flames. And we were led by a woman couple. She told us, do you see the chimneys? Do you see the flames? Do you see the smokes? Those are your parents, your children, your husbands burning. And we looked at each other, she's she's crazy. I mean, you know, we couldn't couldn't believe. I heard a woman calling. She said, if you have any bread, give it to us. Give it to me. They don't let you keep it anyway. I had a little piece of bread, and I threw it to her. They shot her. They screamed at us, this rope. So we were naked, and they shaved us. All the hair was shaved. And then we were supposed to take a shower. The so-called older people also were supposed to go to a shower. Instead of water, it was gas. Those were the gas chambers. We didn't know anything about what showers meant, could mean in in Auschwitz. They took away all our clothes, 
we got just one shift, a, a so-called dress, just nothing. And they put us in the barracks. There were no mattresses, there was no straw, nothing. There was just wooden banks and latrines in the, in the middle. We were five people on one of the beds. If one person wanted to turn, the others had to turn too. I don't remember ever talking to anybody because everybody was in such total shock. That's a clip from the uh, new film, Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home. Uh, Ethan Benziger is the director. He uh, interviewed uh, many of the people who are in this unique place, uh, a, uh, a home for uh, a home to more than a thousand Central European Jewish refugees and Holocaust survivors. This is in uh, Chicago. And so uh, those were the voices of Edith Pollock-Stern and Hannah Messenger. Very powerful uh, you get off the train, and it's a life-or-death decision from the doctor there or whoever it is, left or right. It is indeed, uh, even though we spoke about separation of family at Theresienstadt, this was the final separation. There was Edith on the train to Auschwitz. Her mother already had a nervous breakdown on the train, knowing that they weren't going to Germany as promised to a labor camp, but the train was going east. So mom realized they were heading toward the death camp. Mm -hmm. So when they arrived, uh, there was screaming. There was yelling. There was no formal goodbye between Edith and her mother. The mother was pushed away by the Nazi guards and led off to the gas chamber. Edith, because she was young, uh, went through the selection process as well by Dr. Mengele and other physicians and uh, was sent uh, to work, as many were in Auschwitz that were young enough to do that. You had to be the right age. You couldn't be too young and not work, and you couldn't be too old. Hmm. One of these uh, women, I think this was Hannah Messenger, she also had an encounter with Dr. Mengele. He was, I guess, at, he was choosing at, at that point, one of his duties. Um, is she the one who had the abortion? In, uh... She is the one who had the abortion, and being the doctor he was, uh, recognized that she either was or had been pregnant and told her, you are pregnant, and he was about to point his finger, leading her away to the gas chamber when she spoke up and said, no, I was pregnant. I had an abortion. And, and there was further dialogue, but that saved her. That saved her life. Yeah, and she's still affected by this, you can tell, many, many years later. You know, and, and that's why we made a film of these people. Rather than letting young people continue to read these stories in books, the Eli Wiesel novels are amazing, but to see the emotion on their faces, to hear their voices, to see the tears streaming down, that's powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's why we made this film. Mm -hmm. One of the gentlemen in the, in the film says uh, this life, and he's referring even before death camps, as the, as the persecution and uh, discrimination is ramping up, uh, so this life changed people. And I suppose it changed people in bad and good ways. In fact, the gentleman, uh, Horst, who, who went to, uh, to Shanghai, he said something, I think it was him, said something inside me broke. I knew I had to get out. But uh, it, it wasn't a fundamental break. It's just a decision. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, in, in what ways, these experiences changed these people. Well, I think it relates uh, again to what I said a few minutes ago, uh, giving my grandfather as an example, and that was so typical of German Jews thinking that they were first Germans and secondarily Jews, and thinking this is a government that loved them. They had many high-ranking positions, both in the German government, at universities, as physicians, as judges on the bench. And all of a sudden, this Nazi regime comes into power and life eviscerates for them. Life changes from one day to the next. So from being in a powerful position, well-respected, the next day you're being forced out of the country that you thought cared for you. So just think of us as Americans from one day to the next learning that America doesn't love us and that we're being forced out. So that was that first change. Hmm. 
By the way, I, I learned from the, the film, um, Auschwitz, 15 square miles, Fif- biggest biggest train yard in the world, I think, at the time. Yep, yep. Bigger than Penn Station at that point, which then was the biggest in New York. Mm. And uh, in the end, more than a million people killed. There. More than a million killed. And uh, it's interesting. There's some. There's a new statistic, Tom, that I want to share with you and your listeners. In the film, one of the professors indicates that there were 10,004 ghettos and death camps in Nazi-occupied Europe during the war. The most recent research that just came out in the New York Times a few weeks ago that figure is quadruple, over 42,000 death camps, prisoner camps, ghettos, an unfathomable number. Mm. So there's new information coming out every day, Mm. and there are families that continue to find each other every day. Mm. If I were to go and talk to one of these uh, people at the self-help home, what do you think they would tell me, the, the lesson that I should take from, from the Holocaust? And unfortunately, as we always when we talk about the Holocaust, we, we talk about the genocides that have come after in this, this century. Uh, what would they want the takeaway from their lives to be? You know, I think one of the lessons is, of course, that it can start with name-calling. It can start with a sign at a swimming pool saying you're not permitted. It can then gravitate to bullying, and then it can get a lot worse, ultimately death. Mm. Uh, So I think they would tell you, don't take bullying lightly. Don't take finger-pointing, name-calling lightly. We have to learn from history. Uh, you uh, talk to people uh, about liberation. Of course, this is joyous. This is wonderful. But uh, there are problems. Everything isn't solved, of course, after liberation. I wonder if you could tell the story about the reuniting of the two sisters that we talked about. The one's in England. The other has survived Auschwitz. Indeed. Uh, the one in England who spent six years with a wonderful Quaker family, the Jones family, Uh, receives some nursing training while she's in England, and toward the end of the war comes back with a group of Czech doctors and nurses to Theresienstadt. And Theresienstadt at the end of the war is turned into basically a hospital for those that did survive the death camps. And there she runs into a nurse that also knows Edith, her sister. So all of a sudden, Edith finds out that her sister, who she thought was in England, is now in Theresienstadt. And there's a very tearful and joyous reunion, of course. Uh, And then there are other stories, such as Hannah, who at the end of the war walks from a death camp back to Prague to her apartment, and a strange lady answers the door. Hannah, thinking maybe some family members survived and would have made their way to the apartment as well, and learns that no one, in fact, survived, Mm -hmm. that everybody was killed. Mm -hmm. And that was, of course, the struggle of all that survived at the end of the war, trying to figure out what family members were still there. Mm -hmm. Did any of them have survivor's guilt that we, you know, we we only learned about this really in, you know, psychological books later on, but uh, did, did any of them suffer from this? Well... I must say, if you get to know Edith and Marietta, you see that by virtue of their two experiences, they are very, very different people. And I think there are perhaps some hard feelings there, some guilt on Marietta's part that she could spend the war only two hours by plane away in England with a wonderful, caring family going to school while her sister, of course, is dragged through hell, both at Theresienstadt and Auschwitz. So you certainly have that particular setup mm-hmm. in the film that you can read into it. I was going to ask you about that, because it's an interesting two sisters who had very different experiences. And, of course, you can't blame anybody. They're, you know, the, the family is doing, doing the right thing. You know, right. You, I think anyone would say by sending Marietta off to, off to England. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
but uh, but but uh, the the layers of consequences that that come through this this horrible thing that happened. Um, I, I wonder then. A lot of people come to America because I think America had relaxed its. Um, immigration laws before we get into that story and get into the how the house was was um, started do any of the people have bitterness about the uh, fairly strict immigration laws and that maybe what they see I know some people feel that uh, other countries could have helped more and they didn't oh I think there's tremendous bitterness uh, at the worldwide community there's a story of the ship the st. Louis that sailed uh, to Cuba And uh, when they arrived in Cuba, they learned that the entry permits to Cuba that they had were actually forged documents that they received in Europe. Cuba wouldn't let them in, and the United States wouldn't let them in. This ship was off the U.S. border for weeks and weeks and was forced to return to Europe. And many of those on the ship were ultimately killed during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the doors were basically slammed shut on the Jews of Europe, with the exception of Shanghai and a few other exceptions. Hmm. And Shanghai, I learned from your film, this is kind of an odd irony. This is Japan-controlled Shanghai. They weren't on board with extermination of the Jews, right? And uh, so they were letting Jews in. uh, they, They were an ally of Germany. They were an ally, but uh, they they didn't swallow the 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 Hitler's thinking that Jews had to be exterminated. They didn't see why that had to be. So yes, they were very very good to the Jews of uh, Jews of Shanghai. As I said earlier, conditions were tough, mm. but they weren't killed. Mm. So. Um, it, it, most of the people then who came to America had relatives here, or, or did were people just allowed to, to come once the immigration uh, laws were relaxed? You how, know, how did they make it, their way? It, it's no different than it is today. You needed a family visa. You needed a sponsor uh, who would give you an affidavit of support. It had to be a U.S. citizen that could prove to the government that they had sufficient means to support the refugee and that the refugee wouldn't have to go on welfare. So once that was submitted to the U.S. consulate abroad in Europe, a visa would be issued and the person could then enter America. Mm. Uh, Hannah Messenger, one of the women that was in Auschwitz that we featured earlier, she had an aunt. I think that's that's who she came to, to see in Chicago. Exactly. That aunt did provide her that affidavit of support. So Hannah first came to New York and then flew on, and we show the picture, a prop plane into Midway Airport and initially was greeted by a reporter from the Sun-Times on the plane, but she didn't know that that person was a reporter. Here's this young, traumatized person, afraid of officialdom, and is approached by someone who looks very official on the plane who says, I want to talk to you. And the tears, as she recounts, started rolling. Mm. And only after a few minutes did she realize that this was a newspaper reporter who then told the story on the front page of the Sun Times <laughs> a few days later? And you show the you show that front page. You do photo, do. joyous photo with with Hannah Messenger and her aunt. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. Uh, wonderful. Uh, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be back with uh, Ethan Benziger. He's the director of a new documentary film, Refuge: Stories of the Self Help Home. That's a, a home in Chicago that uh, brought together more than a thousand uh, Central European Jewish refugees. Um, over the generations uh, and Holocaust survivors under one roof. And uh, we have been hearing some stories from these the residents of, of the home who lived through these times, some of them Holocaust survivors. Uh, Refuge, by the way, was awarded Best Documentary and Best in Fest at the 2012 Sycamore Film Festival. It uh, showed recently at the Logan Film Festival and uh, more following the break. There's no English translation for the Dutch word gezellig. It's a mix of cozy, cheerful, and exciting. Are there things that can never be understood, expressed, or experienced outside their home culture? I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, on To the Best of Our Knowledge, wandering the unmarked maps of cultural translation. It's To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are have been hearing stories of the Holocaust and uh, refugees from uh, uh, from those times. 
and uh, listening to some clips from a new documentary film, Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home. And uh, more information on the film is uh, storiesofselfhelps-film.com. The director, Ethan Benziger, is my guest for the hour. Um, and uh, now we want to get into uh, talking about the self-help home itself. How did this start? Well, Tom, uh, we spoke a little before about Kristallnacht and an emigration to America. Some German refugees were already able to make it to America based on the relative and the issuance of the affidavit of support right after Kristallnacht. So in 38, some came, they settled in Hyde Park, and self-help then started as an organization to provide services to other refugees arriving in Hyde Park. English lessons, housing assistance, job assistance. But only at the end of the war, when more refugees arrived, and grandma and grandpa were in tow, and these grandparents would sit by themselves during the day, speaking only German, in these large apartments in Hyde Park, while the younger generation was already out working, a realization came that we need to find a home that these grandparents could get together, live under one roof, and live in an environment, and we use this word, and you played it earlier, this sense of Gemütlichkeit, the German word for comfort. And that's what they started replicating already in 1950 with the purchase of this mansion in Hyde Park where the first group of 18 grandparents lived together like a family. Hmm. So you'd have to raise money for this, wouldn't you? Um uh, first of all, the, the the impulse seems very noble. The, in fact, we heard it in the opening clip that they they realized this older generation had been through hell. They wanted to give them this comfort you were talking about, very noble impulse from the younger generation. But this would take resources, wouldn't it? It would. And this is where the name self-help, of course, comes in. They didn't go to the Jewish Federation, which was a charity organization. They didn't look for welfare. They accumulated these pennies, nickels, $10 bills through the German-Jewish community of refugees that started working right away, this younger generation, and raised the money within that refugee community. So they self, they helped themselves, and that's how we get the word self-help. Where did that idea come from, self-help? Is that because they couldn't find help anywhere else during the war years? Is it, it Self-help seemed to be a very important part of this. You know, I think it has to do in part with their being proud Germans, and they, they didn't want to look outside of their community and really just wanted to help themselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was an original residency of what you said, 18? There was 18, people? and then a few years later it already grew to 45. Mm-hmm. So they had to collect more money. They built an addition to that old mansion in Hyde Park. And then with demographic changes in Chicago, a decision was made really to build a brand new home on the north side of Chicago Mm. because the younger generation was moving up north and they didn't want to leave grandma and grandpa on the other side of the city. Mm. So by 1963, the new home was built on the north side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And now it's a younger generation that's living there, that if this is many years later now. Uh, I wonder about those people when they first came to America, that they just wanted to get on with their lives, get, get jobs, raise families. What? Uh... And they did do that, of mm-hmm. course, the younger generation. Some of them went to school. They, of course, all learned English. Uh, they tried to put the war years behind them. Hannah Messenger indicates in the film that she was very traumatized for many years until she started painting, and that relieved her anxieties and trauma. But these are very special people, and they did make wonderful lives for themselves, some of them having become painters, and their works are on exhibit today at various museums around the country. And yes, as they aged, they knew that there was only one place for them to go as they grew older. They knew about the self-help, of course, from their younger years. Their parents and grandparents were there, and now it was their turn. But Tom, you know, with, with the death rate being what it is, 
Today at Self-Help, we only have a core of 12 refugees and survivors left. 12? 12. Wow. Um, so very important to, to make films like yours. Uh, what's the, what was the atmosphere now? And then and now in, in, in this home, this is a, very, it's a self-selected group of people who have gone through a very traumatic experience. It's still a very nurturing atmosphere. Much of that Gemütlichkeit feeling of comfort that was there 50 years ago is still there today. So on Sundays, they have concerts. They bring in from the lyric opera in Chicago stars that are there. They bring in from the symphony players. They have lectures. They have the white tablecloth, the fine china, and the silverware. And they still serve once in a while the good German food, the sauerbraten, the spätzl, uh, the potato with parsley. So they still try to keep that sense of comfort uh, so these people don't forget. Mm. We have another uh, one last clip from the film, which is uh, probably a good place to play this now. Um, This is uh, a clip from Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home. Let's talk about what the future should be. When uh, our generation is gone, it will be very, very difficult uh, to maintain that spirit. I'm concerned because... uh, what made this organization for what it is, is a cause. And that cause is evaporating. And then you lose the ambience and the culture that we have here. Certainly, it's not going to be victims of Nazi persecution anymore. They're going to be gone within, what, 10 years? I am lucky because <coughs> no matter how bad the situation was or seems to be, somehow I always wiggle out. I survived the Holocaust. I am healthy. I can run. I can dance. I can jump. I can carry. So, yeah, I'm lucky, right? Happy? That's something else, okay? I'm not happy. Happy, I would only be with my husband is here. But very satisfied. I can't complain about anything. We are the last generation. They are dying out, okay? The survivors. It is up to the future generation whether they feel that we are doing the right thing and we are able to maintain the high standards that self-help has set for itself. And until we can know that, I cannot really vouch for the future of self-help. You have family? No, I have nobody. Nobody here, so you really? No, I have nobody. I've got self-help. Well, that's that's a good thing. That's what we're here for. Yeah. I just hope we can keep up the, in the same spirit. Yeah, thank you. And with the same nice people that we have around here. Yeah. And hope that it'll last for a long time to come. What else can we say? It's a clip from Refuge Stories of the Self-Help Home. I, I think some of the women we were talking about uh, were, were included in that last montage, Edith Pollock-Stern and uh, Hannah Messenger. And, and some others, of course. Uh, interesting, kind of some different perspectives there. But I wonder what what will happen when the when the twelve are, are gone. Well, the home will continue. The home has a hundred and fifty beds, Tom, and it's home today for a broader Jewish American constituency. So, uh, even though some of the board members who were the original founders of the home and are still on the board today, some seventy years later are somewhat skeptical what will happen to the home when they, as the original founders, are gone. We have to keep in mind that there's also younger blood on the board itself. And I think uh, uh, they will make sure that the home continues as a haven for other refugees or American Jews. Now, of course, the home is open to anyone that wants to come. But the Jewish community, like the Irish or the Italian, people like to be with their own, of course. And I think the home will continue. It's well endowed. Perhaps one day it will become uh, an entity under the umbrella of the Jewish Federation in Chicago. All of these are issues under discussion by the board today. But I'm confident that self-help will continue into the future to serve a very, very important purpose to the elderly in Chicago. 
Finally, what we talked earlier about what lessons you think the, uh, the survivors there would would have for us. What do you take away? And and you are uh, you you are descended from uh, from refugees. Uh, what lessons do you take away from the experience of having interviewed these good people? Well, first of all, I learned, and you're right, I am a refugee of refugees, my, my family having come from Nazi Germany. Uh, and, you know, growing up, Tom, I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Holocaust, and only by interviewing these people did I learn that the Central European experience of Kristallnacht the kinder transport, Shanghai and Theresienstadt, was a unique experience in the Holocaust. And that's something that I really didn't know. And I took that away. And that's one of the reasons I made the film, to make sure that others would understand that you can't look at the Holocaust as one entity, but there were segments, different different experiences. And of course, learning, of course, that history often repeats itself. We only need to look at the news today of 70,000 Syrians dying and the world not coming to help them. So uh, we need to repeat these stories again and again. Young people need to read the books, watch these movies, watch other films and documentaries about the Holocaust so that it can be ingrained in them, proving that, you know, man can do uh, some pretty bad things. And uh, we have to learn from these experiences. Uh, Rwanda happened not all that long ago. Bosnia was not that long ago. And Syria still continues today. The film is Refuge, Stories of the Self-Help Home. You can find out more about the film at the website, storiesofselfhelp-film.com. Refuge, Stories of Self-Help Home was shown recently at the Logan Film Festival. And my guest has been the director, Ethan Benzier. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All the best to you, Tom. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. A good friend of mine and her husband are downsizing. That is the Ocarat label for shedding 45 years' worth of household stuff, selling your five-bedroom, three-bath home, and moving into a 900-square-foot condo. I'm sure my husband and I will be doing the same thing sometime in the future, so I'm paying a lot of attention to these events. The first thing it entails is putting on a major sale. Not your usual Saturday morning, a poster on a street sign, front lawn kind of garage sale. Oh no. This means serious advertising via Twitter, Facebook, email, and newspaper. A sale on such a massive and gigantic scale that it rivals even a Dillard's going out of business blowout. There are, however, some inherent problems with this kind of garage sale. One is that when you reach a certain age, which 99% of my acquaintances are, it is unlikely that you'll come to a garage sale with the same level of eager anticipation you would have shown at, say, 23, when you were newly married, poor, and just setting up housekeeping. Now, nearly all your senior pals are also seeing downsizing in their future, so they are naturally reluctant to purchase any more stuff. A second problem is that even if there are some in the 